The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. What if you had no fear, no negative emotions, no anxiety at all? Everything would be kind of the same, pleasant, but there's no contrast, nothing to really celebrate because you had these more uncomfortable things. They serve a purpose. Hey, everyone. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, and this is Everyday Better, a self-improvement podcast where every week I sit down with some of the world's brightest minds and bravest hearts to learn how we can improve ourselves, our relationship to others, and the world around us. Today, I did a fast follow, that's code for we loved her so much we brought her back, with Dr. Wendy Suzuki. If you didn't catch our first episode, take a listen. It was on October 3rd, and I brought her in to talk about her book, Good Anxiety. She gave us all the info and tips on how to conquer everyday anxiety, which most of us experience. This time, I asked Wendy to come to the studio to talk about something that's been brewing a bit for me. It's social anxiety. And now that you get where I'm going, I'm going to rephrase that. It's everyday anxiety as it relates to social experiences, not the diagnosis of social anxiety. So where does it come up? We probably all know when we're at that event and we don't know anyone or we're in the office and we're trying to make conversation, when we want to make a new friend or start a new relationship, you might hear thoughts in your head like, I'm nervous or what if I'm awkward? I don't know how to talk to people anymore. And oh, by the way, I am exhausted. At the same time, the stakes feel so high. Like we've got to be really good at this every time we walk into a social setting and want to make a good impression. Wendy and I didn't get into introversion versus extroversion or shyness, so this isn't about profiling. It's simply about the universal feeling of some awkwardness or anxiety when it comes to spending time with people we are not deeply connected to. Wendy has some great advice on getting comfortable with awkwardness how to stop reinforcing that you aren't good at socializing, because you certainly can be, and why it's worth it to work up a little social sweat in service of building new connections. Here she is. This is the perfect moment to start focusing on social anxiety. Because of the pandemic, I see it in all of my students that they don't know how to communicate and connect with each other in class, yet that is the thing they want to do most. And it's awkward, and then they just end up going back to their dorm room because it was too hard to know what to say. And I've heard this over and over again from other universities. Mm. Social interactions happen all the time, every day, especially if you are in classrooms. So you're forced to do it. Doesn't make it easier, but it's something that we're stumbling through. Yeah. Sometimes it just feels like it's not getting easier. I still hate it, yet I really want it. And that kind of heightens the tension yeah. around social anxiety right now. Is that now. called cognitive dissonance? It almost feels like an internal battle. You yes. fight. It's like you're fighting yourself for not being able to do yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So is there a difference between shyness, nervousness, social anxiety? There is a particular focus on social anxiety just because of the lack of practice. So even if you're not particularly shy, if you're out of practice, 
initiating that conversation. You know, how many times were I just came on the subway. Did I say anything to the neighbors on my subway? No, you don't do that. But in other situations, you want to be able to be more flexible and start a conversation. That is hard to do when you've been doing your high school or college classes alone in your bedroom for several years and just starting to come out now, of course. I would almost say that it supersedes the shyness versus, you know, introvert, extrovert kind of person because of the lack of practice and then just the awkwardness that's there. I wonder, too, thinking about social anxiety, I was also thinking about the role that social media plays in us having this online persona and presence and then having to show up in person almost to fit into that mold we've created for ourselves. And I wondered if that plays a role. I'm sure it does. That idea that you have to be perfect. You have to be the personality out there. And then you look in the mirror and you listen to yourself and it's like, okay, that is just not happening. But that's not the case. A little awkwardness happens in all situations. And it's about learning to just accept that and almost laugh at it and joke about, okay, that was a little awkward. That was a big (laughs) silence. Uh, What should we say now? Um, You need practice. You need somebody to model that for you. Okay, maybe I'll try that next time. Let's see how that lands. There are things that you can do to actually ease your way. I find myself motivating people to do things that they know are good for them, but they don't really want to do. I started with exercise. I was going to say, that sounds like me every day with exercise. (laughs) Everybody wants to do it. How do you do it? And so the trick is small bites for exercise. No question about it. So many people, too long a class. Don't go to a 90-minute yoga class. Go to a 10-minute yoga class. Same thing with social things. Can you start out in a modality that's really easy and familiar. Mm. What about a text to somebody that there's no issue connecting with? One of the best talks that I ever heard last year was by Robert Wallinger, who studies happiness. His whole thesis was connecting with people is what makes us happy. And so then he invited us to do that by texting somebody that you've been thinking about but haven't been in contact with and just send a quick text. Hi, I've been thinking about you. Thank you for being you. And we all did. And I felt that reverberating around our university for days after when people said, you know, I got this text and they said it was at the talk that you sponsored to me. So what a wonderful thing that anybody can do because you're texting somebody that is already dear to you, that already you have that relationship and just reminding yourself of that relationship that could start a conversation, a phone call or a Zoom call or maybe even a (laughs) face-to-face meeting. Wouldn't that be great? is a great way to start because it'll remind you how lovely it is to connect with people like that. One simple trick can do that for the social part and give you that motivation. It's like, okay, yeah, let me try expand my my circles. And maybe I will, you know, have the audacity to say something friendly to somebody else. You, you reminded me of this shirt I've been wanting to buy forever. It's the I Never Regret a Workout shirt. <laughs> right. You always can't stand the first 10 minutes. And then all of a sudden you hit this point and you're like, oh, this is great. Yeah. And I really love that you called out that generally that we tend to conflate lots of things. Mm-hmm. So we might feel awkwardness and then say, I have social anxiety, mm-hmm. right? There's like all of a sudden we've diagnosed ourselves with this right. thing. So then we're like, okay, I have a deficiency versus, wait, 
everybody probably feels a little bit awkward at first when they're engaging with someone new or with someone that we don't have a lot of consistent time with. Right. Would you say that's true? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And for me personally, my problem was that as a human being, I needed that connection. I was always about, okay, get your work done. You're trying to get a PhD or you're trying to get tenure. So all those social things, those were secondary. So I wasn't good at that. I didn't practice that muscle. And I wasn't a particularly interesting conversation partner because all I could talk about was my work. And that gets boring after the first five seconds. Right. And then I realized that I needed to pay more attention to that. And you need to focus on things that you value. And so the first step, I value that. That is so important. It was missing in my life. And so I am an example of somebody that could, that can learn that skill and get better at that skill. And today, I basically have to be a professional social person in leading meetings, in representing my university. I have to be professionally friendly. There are people that I walk down the street and they they say, hi, I have no idea who they are. And I'm like, hi, good to see you. I never used to do that. But, but it's part of what I have to do. And it's such great practice. I am more a friendly people person, but it was kind of forced on me in a positive way. But it's a skill that can be learned, clearly. Would you say there is, in the way you're talking about good anxiety, a difference between everyday anxiety and social anxiety? Sure. Yeah. So social anxiety is clinically defined, and it is that kind of anxiety that really keeps you from, you can't even go into school because you're so anxious to be around people. Everyday anxiety is usually what people have when they say, oh, I have social anxiety. They're still interacting with people, but there's just discomfort. They're feeling anxiety around things. And and that's who this book was written for, because there's so many different ways to address that, from mindset shifts to new ways to think about creativity in your life to new ways to deploy empathy that I think everybody needs more of. I think the world needs more of. And it certainly works beautifully for social anxiety. There's a reason that it feels like the stakes are high is because of how much we need to belong and be in relationship. Yeah, I think it's partially that. It's partially the Instagram effect. It has to be this perfect movie every single time. And that just never happens. And I think that everybody has the impression that everybody else has an easier time meeting people and connecting with people than they do. And the fact is there are people that are connectors, but they practice it. They work at it. They spend time talking and strengthening those bonds. And you, if you never do it, you can't expect to, poof, suddenly I'm connected to, you know, all these different people. It does take time and it takes time to find your style. Everybody has a different style to connect to. And guess what? You're not going to connect with every single kind of personality out there. You know, find ones that fit or find ones that you thought you would and, oh, this is going to be so good. And suddenly, ooh, doesn't work anymore. That happens to all different varieties. And the high stakes is a critical point. I know this is easier said than done. Get rid of that idea. It's not so high stakes. You know what? You could fail terribly with this one person. That's okay. 
that didn't work because there's so many other people. And that is your power to try again. If you go home after that and never try again, well, then nothing's going to change. But take it and learn from it. That feeling of sadness or failure even can be the most important learning. I love the idea of reflecting and getting curious. Yeah. It's non-judgmental curiosity. Right. What do you say to people who are in work environments or they're experiencing social anxiety and the stakes do feel high because there's a power dynamic, mm-hmm. like they're around maybe their managers or colleagues and people that they do want to impress? I think you need to use some good judgment about what topics you, you broach and stay away from. Actually, this is really good practice. What if you start a more neutral conversation about something that you're on the same level of? Because that'll just take away the social dynamic. There are lots of neutral things that you can talk about. Share something that you are interested in with somebody else or be interested in something non-work related. That they Like, where did they go on vacation last? What is your hobby? Oh, I saw that you like to collect something. Those are ways to strengthen relationships that take it out of the hierarchy, even though you're at the work situation. And that is going to be appreciated. It's so lovely to be asked about what your likes are, what kind of foods you like, what kind of things do you like to do, what kind of shows do you like to watch. They're wonderful conversations. Yeah, instead of work being the qualifier for whether or not I'm going to interact with you or like how I'm going to interact with you. When you say neutral, I went to, oh, is this small talk about the weather or is this something else? And you said favorite object in your home, which I love that idea. I was like, oh, that's an interesting one. Is it like anything we can find that has nothing to do with work? Yeah. And you will quickly find, you know, what resonates with or does not resonate (laughs) with the other person. The object one is a fun one. The best meeting I ever went to was organized by the National Science Foundation, and they brought together a group of science documentary filmmakers and scientists. And that group was like, oh, I want to learn about you. What do you do? And they had us do this exercise. And I always remember that was my favorite exercise. We It was like speed dating. So we had to go around to strangers and go down one question and answer that with each other. And that was one of my favorite ones because you got these very revealing answers about what they find precious in their own homes. I just learned so much about a complete stranger in five seconds by asking that question. Okay, sidebar, what is your favorite object in your home? It is the Buddhist prayer box that belonged to my grandfather who passed away before I was born. And it was hidden away in a suitcase in my cousin's house under the staircase since 1963 when he passed away. And nobody wanted it. And my cousin called during COVID and said, do you have room for it? Do you want this? And I said, yes, I would love it. It is so beautiful. It's an antique. He brought it from Japan. And there's a a statue of Buddha in there. There's a a little bell. um, There's a, a little pot to put the incense in. And it's the most precious thing that I have in my house. Wow. Okay. So like in that moment, I went, okay, family is important to you. Mm. Like perhaps like foundation or origin is important to you. Some sort of like spirituality or meaning or purpose is important to you, possibly religion. Yeah. 
And that's completely different than what I've I've talked to you already once. And yeah. Like, I didn't know that, right? So <laughs> for a whole hour, too. For a whole yeah. hour. Yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, I'm thinking about what progress looks like because I think something we, we forget to do and it's to reflect mm-hmm. and go, oh, back there six months ago, that's where I was. So yeah. when we think about experiencing everyday anxiety as it relates to social interactions, what are some of the small things we can do to start and how can we mark our progress in our improvement? Something that I learned at the Aspen Ideas Festival, and it was the most incredible environment because, you know, when you go to a talk, a bunch of strangers, I don't know anybody there. Yet at that talk, no matter who you're sitting next to or who you're riding the bus with, you've all gone to an interesting or a related talk. And You just start talking about it. What did you think? Oh, I thought that was so interesting. As if you've known each other, as if you chatted about the talk through the whole thing. But it's this ease of doing that. And I left that meeting thinking, I want to create that at NYU for my students, for my staff, because that doesn't, we're New Yorkers. Like, I'm trying to ignore you very hard. But bring that mindset to the next class you go to, the next lecture that you go to, and start out small. Don't force it, but if it was a point or an idea that was really interesting, just comment about that. Wasn't that great? What did you think about that? And because it shows your interest in what you just experienced together, but also opens you up to, I want to hear about you. It is a little scary to do, but get practice at it. And the first person that responds back, it feels so good. You get into a conversation. Who knows where it's going to take you? And note that down. Maybe keep a record of these efforts. This worked. Oh, this day, person completely ignored me. But the more you do it, the more comfortable you'll feel doing it. It reminds me of my exercise findings where the exercise group has higher motivation to exercise. So the more you exercise, the more motivated you are to exercise. And while I haven't done the study, I will bet you that the more you socially engage, the more you're motivated to be socially engaged because you get at least a little bit of feedback. And I think people would be surprised how little positive feedback that they need to try again. Oh, that was good. Because it is a dopamine hit when you do have a nice connection, even a short conversation. So I love this idea. The better you get, the more you want it. You talk about plasticity. Does that relate to this, like the brain plasticity and us kind of like retraining our brains? Absolutely. I think that our brains have evolved to be able to interpret social situations, you know, recognize his faces, recognize his facial expressions, like, ooh, that's a bad facial expression. I better you know, change the topic right now. We evolve to be able to pick up on that very, very quickly. And when we do have positive social interactions, that does release dopamine. So that positive interaction is rewarding, and that leads to seeking more such situations. And if you approach it with kind of a open mindset, a learning mindset, instead of a fixed mindset, oh, that didn't work. It's never going to work. But let me try something different. Oh, maybe I'll pay attention to my friend over there that seems to really be charming. Let's try some of those approaches. That will lead to more experimentation, more trials, the N, as we like to call it, that your N number will go up higher. And if you are learning in a positive sense, that will lead to higher numbers of dopamine hits when you are successful. And so that will slowly but surely shape your behavior and give you more overall positive social interactions, which we were evolved to try and get in our lifetimes. 
And so is this kind of the analogy of the ski slope where it's like the more times we skied on the ski slope of not interacting or choosing not to interact, the easier it gets for us to do it versus the more times we ski down the ski slope of just asking that one question, the easier it becomes for our brain to do it. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that I've done a lot is just model my friends and colleagues that I admire socially for their grace, for how they make others feel easy. And not like I try and copy them, but certain things I will try out for myself. And that modeling can be very, very helpful, especially when you're first getting started. Also, sometimes I have negative models. I will never do that. In my new social state of being, I pay attention to both. It sounds like that's you finding your style. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) We're taking a quick break. We'll be right back with Dr. Wendy Suzuki. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. And we're back with Dr. Wendy Suzuki. So I think it's incredibly important for people to understand what you're doing. It also has long-lasting effects because you are building a new synaptic connection or ski slope so that in the future, the more you do it, the easier it becomes so that at some point you look back and go, oh, I remember when that was so hard. Yes. Just like learning any other new skill. And is the goal with everyday anxiety in general or as it relates to social, is it to get rid of it Mm. or is it to quell it, what would you say the goal is? The goal that I describe in good anxiety is really to harness this emotion. It is an uncomfortable emotion. It evolved to be uncomfortable, to give you a warning sign. Oh, something's going on here. Pay attention here. It's a moment for learning or it's a moment to, you know, dwell in this feeling of discomfort, which too many people do. What I want to help people do is to harness the information that that uncomfortable feeling of anxiety is giving you. So the discomfort can never go away. It's there for good. Don't believe anybody that says they can get rid of your anxiety. But what I want to try and do is have you learn maximally from that warning signal that's in all of us and then be able to work with it to move away from that situation that is causing anxiety. And it might come up again because we live in a complex world, but you get better at better at knowing what to do to get away from it as quickly as possible. When you think about do's and don'ts of how to manage this, in your book, you talk about using inquiry to understand what triggers anxiety, Mm -hmm. right? So that's a very inward focus. It's reflective. Yeah. Then there's the, I felt anxious about something. And so I had to go to somebody else to get reassurance that I didn't look crazy, right? Or I didn't seem weird or Mm -hmm. I didn't seem awkward. Mm. I feel like there's a very core difference in those two. And that the second one that's outwardly focused gives us maybe a moment of feeling a little bit better, but we're returned right back to our Mm -hmm. state of asking questions. Do you have a differing viewpoint? How would you approach it? 
Yeah, I think I've really focused in Good Anxiety on those inner tools. It's really about understanding our own kaleidoscope of emotions better. Everybody loves the positive emotions. And, uh, Don't we all? <laughs> wouldn't we like to just get rid of all those negative ones? Oh, sadness. Oh, grief. Oh, that's a horrible one. Anxiety. But again, there's a reason why all of them evolved in us. And in fact, that the reason why those more difficult emotions are so powerful is that they are warning us about things in our lives. And so I'm trying to teach people to be the emotional tea leaf reader of your own kaleidoscope of emotions. It's not that, oh, God, poor me, I have to suffer through sadness and I have to suffer through anxiety. Well, what is that thing that is causing the worry, the uncertainty? But what is behind that? What is the value that is being blocked that causes that anxiety? What if you focus on that value that might be security or might be love of family or pride in work? All of these are positive things that we all strive for. But sometimes you get anger and you get sadness when those things are blocked and maybe you won't know why. Well, some of the inner work that I point people to in Good Anxiety is to try and understand on your own where that's coming from. And also it's important to, to ask yourself, how am I soothing myself? Are they positive self-soothers or are they negative self-soothers that could spiral into places where you may not want to be? And a drink can be relaxing, one drink. Too many drinks when anxiety is high or depression is high is not good medically or psychologically. So there are lists in there just to give you a little heads up and self-awareness about what you are doing to address these difficult emotions. So you talked about self-appreciation 101 in there. So many of the times that I felt anxious and then shared it later, people go, what do you mean? I never knew. And so it's also realizing like your experience of your experience is truly your experience. Yes, yes. Um, and most people are so focused on themselves, they're not paying attention, but they also can't always tell. But when you're having the experience of anxiety, when I'm having it, it's the negative self-talk that tends to take me in the downward spiral of you don't got this. Mm -hmm. Like, wow, you're not organized enough. Like, how did you mess this up? And like, I think some of that for me goes into like perfectionism. How does self-appreciation tie into fighting some of that negative self-talk? So it's just something very powerful to pull your attention away from, ooh, that's not quite straight. You better make it 100% straight or else it is just not good. And it's such a bad habit. And I say that knowing I have perfectionist tendencies as well. Some of the people I've learned the most from are those that can pick out the shining thing in your orbit or in your project. Really pick that out as something to appreciate. And you know, it doesn't matter that these other things may not have been perfect. That is truly something to appreciate, to highlight what was really good about it and why it was good. And really talk about how can we build from there? Because really nothing is perfect. And the other thing that was a great life lesson is that when I stop being perfectionist to myself, which means I stop beating myself up for being perfectionist, I got a whole lot nicer to everybody else around me, which was very hard for me to admit because I always thought, oh, I'm so nice. Well, no, if you are so hard on yourself, 
you can't help but do that to everybody else around you. And then you realize how unfair you're being to everybody else. Actually, I'm being unfair to myself as well. So that was a big aha moment for me. I can still recognize that tendency in myself when I realized I was able to be a much better leader, a better boss, a better friend when I stopped that habit of self-perfectionism for myself. It's like, oh, it was a relief and it was a motivation. We're looking for motivation. Nobody wants the perfectionist to point out every tiny little thing. The good boss, the smart leader can see the best of you. And they're not going to say, oh, well, then also your line wasn't straight too. No, that doesn't matter. So, yeah, that was a big lesson for me. Making space for others to yeah. shine. Yeah. That hits home. Perfectionism is like a protective mechanism. If I can put all of these nice things around me and hold this as tight as I can, then I will be impenetrable. Yes. What's the role that you found, if any, that everyday anxiety and either procrastination or avoidance, mm. um, how do those two play together? Yeah. So procrastination is a form of anxiety. It's one of the ways that one can act out. If there is too much uncertainty, it's just, I'm just not going to deal with it. And that turns into procrastination. And then it makes the whole anxiety even worse because you know you're procrastinating and you can't find a way to start. And that's where you can start using some of the tools. A form of anxiety that leads to procrastination is the what if list. And let's just add in perfectionism. What if I don't get an A? What if it's not A quality? Might as well not start if it's like that. What are all your what ifs? What if I start? It's too hard. What if I don't get an A? What if I'm too late? So one of the powerful tools in this book is the gift of anxiety because you have these lists and that gift is turning that what if list into a to-do list. So what if I'm too late? Well, double check those due dates and make a schedule for yourself from today, this moment on, what do I have to do to get it done? That is the action item for that. What if I don't get an A? Well, what aspect are you most worried about? Where are you weakest on? That's a wonderful moment to start to self-evaluate where you're strong and where you're weak. Use that to actually give yourself more time in the schedule that you just made to spend more time on those areas that you know are more difficult for you. So you're more likely to get an A. Again, an action to put on it. What if I can't find the resources? Well, spend the next 20 minutes researching this. And if you can't find anything, ask a classmate and get over your social anxiety and ask that small question. Maybe you can just text it to them. So there are action items that you can put on every single what if that if you follow them will get you out of procrastination and also help quell the anxiety because you are literally point by point making your situation less ambiguous, which is the big cause of anxiety. Gosh, I have been a procrastinator since I was a child, and I never understood it. And the reason I wanted to ask you about it is because I think a lot of times, and I, I do believe this still permeates, we believe procrastination is laziness. Yeah. And for someone who's like, you know, can be defined by my work in a lot of ways yeah. and the way I contribute truly. It's like, God, to have someone say that, yeah. you know, just have someone say like, you're lazy, you just don't care. Oh I'm like, God. oh my <laughs> God, my head's going <laughs> to pop off. So it was like this hidden thing I didn't want to talk about because it meant I was lazy versus it means because I do still experience it. I am avoiding because I'm anxious about wanting it to turn out in this one specific way. Yeah. That's going to be so good that, yeah. again, right. nobody can touch it because right. it's got to be perfect. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that is such a common issue. 
And I have this as well. And I think at one point, my realization was, wouldn't it be more fun if you could just play a little bit more and it didn't have to come out perfect every time? What if it was actually better if it didn't come out perfect any time? <gasps> could wow. that be? I'm I mean, writing that, that one ch- down. Yeah. <laughs> I never considered that. <laughs> wow. And yeah, just that playfulness. And to get back to our topic of social anxiety, to bring playfulness instead of, okay, I need to have one more friend or five new friends from this one networking activity versus I just want to have a good interaction. Not sure where it's going to go, but just trying to connect with a few people and keep it low stakes, keep it fun and playful. And then you say, oh, actually, the people that seem to be interacting most seem to have that demeanor, that playfulness is very, very powerful. Have you had in this work a really big aha moment? So many big aha moments over time as I dealt with bad anxiety as I was trying to get tenure. And then I got tenure and then I'm like, is that all there is? It's like, (laughs) where's the parade? And it doesn't feel... All the feelings. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I feel the same. What's what's the matter here? To the realization that anxiety could help me. One of my favorite ones is a story that I tell that happened when I was a second year graduate student. And it was the very first big science talk that I ever gave with my lab. I was finally in a lab. I was a member of a lab. And I'd practice, practice, practice this talk. And it was at a big memory meeting, and we went to travel, and there's all these famous scientists there, but it was only students giving these talks. And so I'm in the middle of the lineup, and the guy that went right before me was so bad. He didn't know his talk. He didn't seem to understand his slides. Everybody was like, finish, get off the stage. This is so bad. And then I went on and I had practiced really well. And I could feel the relief that, oh, my God, finally a a speaker that knows what they're talking about. And so I realized later that's called the negative contrast effect. My talk was perceived as even better than it was because the poor guy that went before me (laughs) was so bad. He made me look extra, extra good. Negative contrast effect. And that experience stays with me today because that day... I decided I'm a good speaker. I speak well. So many people came out that was such a great talk. And my mindset is like, I am a good speaker. And so I lived up to that, maybe a little perfectionism there, but I tried to live up to that good speaker persona in myself. But what I realized, I came back to that story in Good Anxiety because I realized from that experience that anxiety is a gift because anxiety is like, that bad speaker. We need those bad experiences to appreciate that a fun experience, like coming to the Empire State Building that I'm in right now to be able to talk to you for a whole hour, that is cool. Yes. And that feels cool and fun because I've had bad, hard days, hard conversations, you know, hard things that I had to do at work, those negative things. That negative contrast makes these fun experiences even more fun. And so that means that my anxiety is actually making my joy even more joyful. Mm, Wow. It's like buoying you. Yeah. Whoa. I hadn't thought about that either. Yeah. How cool. Yeah. And so that was a great superpower to be able to point out 
that what if you had no fear, no negative emotions, no anxiety at all? Everything would be kind of the same, pleasant, but there's no contrast, nothing to really kind of celebrate because you had these more uncomfortable things. They serve a purpose. And thanks to that guy that gave a really bad talk that made me appreciate that so I could write about it 25, 30 years later. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully he's become a good speaker. <laughs> yes, I hope so. I hope so, too. Or, or whatever good he needs to be doing. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> All right, Dr. Suzuki, I'm going to have you complete these three statements for me. Okay. Better humans are? Connected. Better work is? Collaborative. And a better world has? Love. Love it. Thank you so much for being here. This is so fun. This was such a fun conversation. That was Dr. Wendy Suzuki. You can find her book, Good Anxiety, wherever you get your books. And you can check out our other episode together on everyday anxiety if you want to learn more about how to work through that and manage it. One big thing before we go. My biggest lesson in this conversation was about reducing mistakes. I often go into social environments thinking that the stakes are way higher than they actually are. I'm believing that every word I speak is an impression and that I have to get it right. But what if the stakes just weren't as high as we make them up to be? Part of this means letting some of that awkwardness in, getting comfortable with it, and just sitting with yourself and going, oh, I feel a little awkward right now. I'm someone who is probably a wannabe extrovert, but more likely an introvert with extrovert training. So for me, that's about getting comfortable with my own preferences, but also stretching into some of the skills of continuing to socialize even when I feel just a little bit of discomfort. A new connection is always worth a little bit of discomfort and a little social sweat at the beginning. If this conversation resonated with you, share it with the first person who comes to mind. You never know how it could help them and support other people like you in finding our show by leaving us a rating before you go. While you're at it, write a one-sentence review telling me and our Everyday Better team what you love about our show. And as always, you can find me on LinkedIn, writing about human potential and meaningful living. Everyday Better is a production of LinkedIn News. The show is produced by Alexis Ramdow. Our associate producer is Rafa Fariha. Asap Gidron is our sound engineer. He makes sure we sound good in the studio. Joe DiGiorgi mixed our show. Enrique Montalvo is the executive producer of LinkedIn Editorial Productions. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of LinkedIn Original Audio and Video. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. And I'm Leah Smart. Thanks for coming with me, and I'll see you next week.